Welcome to You Should See the Other Guy, the podcast where we watch a romantic comedy and tell you why the protagonist involved in a love triangle in the movie we watched made the wrong decision and picked the wrong person. Today, we have our very first special bonus episode because the 2009 movie, The Ugly Truth, was so bad that we need to investigate further and get to the heart of this. Today we have with us Caroline Sita, a pop culture critic, AV Club contributor, and author of the series When Romance Met Comedy. Her entry on The Ugly Truth in When Romance Met Comedy is entitled, Is the Ugly Truth the Worst Romantic Comedy Ever Made? And we here on You Should See the Other Guy are inclined to say, yes, it was. I am Jennifer. I'm Samantha. And I'm Sadie. And thanks for joining us, Carolyn. Thank you so much for having me. I'm sorry it's not under better uh, film circumstances, <laughs> but I'm happy to dissect this fascinatingly terrible film. No better film to watch during the middle of a global pandemic, I right. think, than the worst romantic comedy ever made. Yeah, just something oh. nice and uplifting. <laughs> My first question for you, Caroline, is how can this movie exist in the same universe as a loving god? <laughs> valid place to start when analyzing this film. There's a lot of questions about how this film came to be, and particularly when it came to be. Like, you you don't think of 2009 as being that long ago, and you watch this and you think, yeah, that was actually, we were in a very different cultural moment then than we are now, thankfully. Something that was baffling to me, and this leads into my like legitimate question, is I looked up when Bridesmaids was made, mm-hmm. which was, you know, like a body, like female focused uh, rom-com. And that was in 2011, only two years after The Ugly Truth. And yet they feel like light years apart from each other. Is The Ugly Truth an aberration or did something, did some switch flip after this got made where people realized you could be like raunchy and feminist at the same time? I do think we were in this bizarre cultural moment where the idea of a raunchy comedy was very popular, like particularly the sort of Judd Apatow brand of that, like 40 year old virgin was like, I think 2005 ish and then knocked up after that. But I genuinely think that as a culture, there was just this like cultural brain fart of how can we put women in raunchy comedies? And the best that they could come up with was like, well, we'll put them in there and just embarrass them the whole time. And then I do think Bridesmaids was the first one that was like, oh, what if we just have them do the raunchy <laughs> humor? Like it really took us a long time to get into a mindset of realizing you can just do the same thing, but have women characters. And I think the ugly truth is sort of like, if if we want to be charitable about it at all, which we might not want to be. <laughs> but I think if anything, it was sort of an attempt to do a raunchy comedy in which the woman at least had more to do than maybe the women did in like 40 year old virgin or knocked up. But it really just I don't know, somehow we needed bridesmaids to come through and like show us that there was a path other than just making Katherine Heigl embarrass herself for two hours or however long the film is. (laughs) I didn't realize until I read your article that this movie had an R rating, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, because we consume all of this on streaming and, you know, I'm 33 years old, so I don't really pay attention to movie ratings anymore. (laughs) And it felt, it felt like that explained a little bit of the movie to me where it felt almost like, teenage in the way that it was celebrating the fact that it had an R rating, but it wasn't adult. Like it it didn't seem mature, honest about adult sex and dating. It just felt like, Oh, we have an R rating so we can put in a strawberry jello scene or the vibrating underwear scene. Yeah. It is that sort of like tee hee hee. We can say the F word in this movie. Like, aren't we so edgy? And yeah, it's just, I don't know. The early two thousands were such a strange sort of like regressive cultural time where it felt like maybe in the 90s, we had a lot of like the late 90s, we had a lot of like PG-13, you know, blockbuster films. And then it was like, ooh, did you know we can do an R-rated film and say bad words? And (laughs) I don't know, it felt like we needed to like purge that from our systems before we can just accept ratings, not as like a goal to strive for, but just as something that is put on a film after the fact. Oh, that leads a little bit 
into my question or rather sort of more a prompt as you have a good view of like the history of rom-coms in general because this movie felt very early 2000s regressive to me and I was actually surprised to find that it had come out in 2009 as opposed mm-hmm. to 2002 or 3. So could you give us a little bit of I guess the the extra info about like what was going on in the rom-com universe at this time like mm-hmm. but what movies but we we talked about Bridesmaids coming out after it but what was contemporaneous with The Ugly Truth and what led to it? Totally. So I think that what most people think of as like a classic romantic comedy now, like something like When Harry Met Sally, that was, the, the, the modern golden age of romantic comedies was the 90s. So really throughout the decade, When Harry Met Sally came out in 1989 and then you had Pretty Woman in 1990. And then from there on in, it was just like nonstop rom-coms, Meg Ryan, Julia Roberts, Hugh Grant. I think that's where a lot of people's, you know, most beloved films come from. And then as we moved into the 2000s, it was like the early 2000s. There are still good rom-coms from that era, but I think you can feel it starting to get a little bit more formulaic. Um, But I think the early... The early 2000s at their best are sort of like a continuation of that. So things like Bridget Jones's Diary or some of Jennifer Lopez's early rom-coms that I really like. And then I think by the time you get to like the late 2000s, right? So like maybe 2005 to 2010, that's where it really becomes like the worst of the worst. (laughs) And I think a big reason that people sort of turned on the genre is because it really just felt like lowest common denominator. No one really cared about making these films and they were sort of, I think that they sort of thought the audience just didn't care about them either in a way. It was like a mutual underestimation of the audience and the creators. And I think that that really like, this is where you get like a really big backlash to romantic comedies. And really they kind of go underground for most of like the 2010s. Um, Until so the yeah, year. I think that, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I do think that, and I actually think Leap Year is another one that is sort of, not to the degree of this film, but is held up as like, maybe want uh, everyone involved didn't fully care about this, or maybe there's a little bit of, of talking down to the audience and even something like 27 dresses, which I like a lot. I think that's often held up along those same lines too. So this was just like a lot of very mainstream, not great rom-coms. Like he's just not that into you was 2009. Uh, Same year as ugly truth, something like bride wars. Like we just started putting Anne Hathaway in these terrible movies. And I think Catherine Heigl really came to sort of represent this entire phenomenon, which maybe is you know, not fair that she became a symbol of a a whole like genre going bad. But I do think it sort of like fell on her shoulders that she was sort of the star we had when this was all happening. So she is certainly tied up in all of that as well. Part of where it feels like things went astray is it feels like in the late 2000s, rom-com stopped being stopped trying to tell stories and started being like sociological theses like Mm -hmm. he's just not that into you (laughs) or just friends (laughs) being about the friend zone or this movie being about like I don't know the difference between men and women or that kind of thing it felt like they started trying to make some broader social commentary instead of just focusing on creating characters you actually Mm -hmm. like yeah I think part of the problem is that in a way, like when Harry Met Sally is too good, because that's a film that's really, for the most part, just about a relationship developing. And even the, like, sometimes it's quoted as being about a movie about, like, can men and women really be friends? But I think that's less of the focus of that movie than it's remembered as being. But anyway, I think that I think that, that movie just did a basic sort of no extra premise rom-com so well that then every other rom-com felt like it needed a premise, right? So something like Notting Hill is like a movie star falling in love with a normal guy or or Runaway Bride, another Julia Roberts thing. And like, here's her quirkiness that she runs away from her weddings. And then as time goes on, it's like, okay, we've used up a lot of the other heightened premises. And so we have to keep churning out more. And then I think also there was just a weird cultural moment of, I don't know, sort of this like male pickup artist and misogyny. It was like, we were more aware of it, but we weren't aware of how terrible it actually was in a way. Like there was like this, I mean, a lot of people were aware of how terrible it was, but I think in a mainstream way, there was, it was almost like this cutesy thing. Like, oh, it's so quirky that guys are trying to manipulate women. And now that we're hopefully a little bit past that. It's like only in retrospect, can you look at it and realize how toxic it actually was, <laughs> even as it was slightly called out for being toxic at the time. Oh, definitely. We need Sadie's question. Sorry, I was just, 
off on a thought train about the VH1 reality show, The Pickup Artist, once again. <laughs> oh my gosh. I So my number one like burning question is, so we talked about how in, in the episode, we talked about how the actual base plot of The Ugly Truth, like mm-hmm. the enemies to lovers, the frustrated producer managing the annoying talent, whatever, is actually not bad like it's it's a good premise but then they just completely ruined it and like you said there was like an attempt at this kind of female raunchy comedy stuff so I was wondering what you would have done if you were writing the screenplay and done differently like what kind of Mm -hmm. fun comedy would you have created the only way to go up is yeah Yeah, there's no way to go down from (laughs) what they've already done it is really bizarre because you would think even if this wasn't a good movie right like a basic plot would be Catherine Heigl needs to loosen up a little bit and Gerard Butler needs to learn to be less misogynistic and they sort of do her arc and then and you guys talked about this in your episode but they just like don't give him any arc at all and all they do is at the end they just bring in a man who's worse than her by literally actively advocating rape on air. And then it's like, oh, well, actually, we realize Gerard Butler isn't bad compared to that guy. So don't worry about him changing at all. So I think just, you know, just from a basic storytelling 101 thing, which I would expect, even I would expect this movie to do, just give Gerard more of an arc. Give Mike Chadway, you know, a moment (laughs) where he, (laughs) he repents in some way or learns or grows or even there's the, there's the, problematic but kind of interesting moment where he's talking to his nephew and he's sort of like he's he's kind of aware that the advice he's giving is bad in a way and I think that could maybe be an interesting idea that he's sort of peddling this because he knows it will sell but then is more self-aware than his on-air persona so maybe there could be something there about him learning do you know what I mean like that this is this thing he's just sort of saying for ratings has these negative consequences it just feels like there needs to be something where he learns and grows a bit it's like I don't understand how they just forgot to do that entirely yeah (laughs) like just giving him a consciousness (laughs) at all yes I think at all giving him anything yeah and and I guess the thesis is sort of like at the end it's supposed to be well they both like each other the way they are But it's like her thing is just being a little bit too overly managed in her personal life. And his thing is actively advocating for the oppression of half of the population. So it doesn't feel like those are equivalent flaws that they should just learn to roll with. Oh, here. Okay, wait. Here's actually my number one biggest fix for this film. I think let Gerard Butler be Scottish. Because he's so much more charming when he has a Scottish accent And even without changing a word of this terrible film, I think just having him be Scottish would make Abby's attraction to him like a little bit more understandable because then it's like, okay, he's like this, you know, terrible, but I guess roguishly hot European man. And that would like, I just think that would like make this at least 10% better, even if you didn't change a word of it. It's not like you can't tell that he doesn't have an American accent. Oh, it's a terrible American accent. <laughs> I, I just don't understand why they didn't just let him be Scottish. Like, it would have Just let, always let longer. Gerard Butler be Scottish. Yeah. <laughs> Hollywood needs to learn. <laughs> um, this was another really burning question that I've been wanting to ask is, what do you think is the worst scene? In the movie. So, like, I know that this Mm -hmm, is an incredibly mm -hmm. difficult question to ask, but I feel like we all have, like, an opinion. (laughs) (laughs) So, I feel like the most obvious and understandable choice is the vibrating underwear scene, which is just a whole, a whole thing to get into. But the one that bothers me the most, because this is where I feel like you can just see how lazy this movie is, it's when... Abby and Colin are going on their baseball date and there's this like whole set piece where it's meant to seem like she's giving him a blowjob in the stands and then the camera focuses on her and it's this like embarrassing moment for her. But this is where it's like if 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 a baseball stadium actually thought that someone was giving someone a blowjob in the stands, the last thing they would do would put it on a jumbotron. And the fact that this movie just loses all logic in that moment in order to make a joke that's not even funny, that is where I'm like, this has just gone off the rails. Like, this isn't, this, yeah. baseball is a family of, like, it's built and, and marketed as a family event. They wouldn't be like, ooh, something sexual happening in our stands, let's 
highlighted on an, a jumbotron. I don't even think the like the image doesn't even necessarily look like I don't know the the physical comedy of it doesn't make any sense. The logic of what's happening doesn't make any sense. And then it's also not funny. And that's when I really have to question what this film is even trying to do. But I also want to hear what all of your least favorite scenes are because I feel like this like you said is a rich territory to explore <laughs> I personally um, my least favorite is probably the flicking the bean conversation yeah. it's, <laughs> it is so uncomfortable like the vibrating underwear scene is uncomfortable but the lead up of this conversation is so bad because first of all it takes place literally on set which is so uncomfortable and it just completely is so insulting to Catherine Heigl's character. It's so weird the way that the dialogue works. It just, it doesn't hit at all, even more so than the whole rest of the movie, which the dialogue doesn't hit ever. And it's just, it's so weird. Like no one even, no one says that. No one talks like that. It's so bad. Sadie, I was actually specifically wondering when we were thinking about how this movie would be improved by letting Gerard Butler use his actual Scottish accent, if it would have helped when he talked about flicking the bean. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. No. I don't think any accent can save that conversation. It's irredeemable. (laughs) Maybe if there was a cute Scottish expression that we Americans were less familiar with, that would have at least sheltered us a little bit. I I think my least favorite scene, besides the hot air balloon scene, which I want to talk to you about more, is the strawberry jello scene. Because he's doing this segment where he's like, what do you think men want? Do you think men want a candlelit romantic dinner or do you think they want to wrestle models in strawberry jello and i don't understand how the two situations are comparable i don't understand <laughs> what sort of practical advice people are meant to take away from that segment like hey honey let's cancel our dinner reservation and go wrestle in jello like <laughs> and the logic of the fact that mike has somehow produced this entire like segment hired these women to come be in this jello and no one on set knows because they're all shocked when he goes out. So like, I don't think Mike has this, I don't trust his like management and logistical skills enough to have put this together without someone helping him do that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they would have needed to get on set somehow. They would have had right. to sign in, say what they were there for. Yeah. No way did Mike call down and, and like get their IDs okayed or whatever. I don't believe in his ability <laughs> to do these things. Jen, what's your your contender for worst scene? Okay, Samantha, like you, besides the hot air balloon scene, my worst scene in this movie was when Katherine Heigl first catches a glimpse of Hot Doctor across the way when she is chasing her cat, D'Artagnan. I don't believe we mentioned the cat's name in our last podcast. Um, and climbs a tree and then becomes so overcome by seeing this like soap opera hot man through the window, like posing as he does whatever hygienic things he's doing, that she falls out of the tree and gets caught by her ankle. And then he runs out to save her. And they do some like, again, the like, uh, the like faux oral sex mishaps in this movie. There were multiple, I guess, but they do this like strange, like sort of like 69 simulating thing while he's trying to get her out of a tree that put me in mind of like the Tobey Maguire, Kirsten Dunst, Spider-Man kiss, (laughs) but in the worst way possible. That was my least favorite scene. (laughs) I think we have to address the hot air balloon. (laughs) Caroline, what, is going on with this hot air balloon green screen thing. Yeah. Why? Why? I don't even know if I have any answers for you. I think it's such a valid question to be asking. It's not really thematically tied to anything the film has set up. Again, you just think basic storytelling, set your climax at something that is relevant to what's happening. Uh, There's also, so here's a little... I mean, I don't know if this is better or worse, but there is an alternate ending you can find online. It still has the hot air balloon sequence as we see it unfold but then after instead of cutting to the scene where they're in bed and ooh, what a quirky ending she'll never reveal if she faked her orgasm so instead of that delightful scene we go a little we get a little more in the hot air balloon and then it's 
Mike and Abby's wedding. And he's sort of giving this speech, which at least is attempting to do something with the themes of this film. And he's like, I don't know. He's sort of like women have their checklists and, and men are too vulgar. But at the end of the day, true love conquers all. (laughs) I mean, I can't say it's good, but at least it's, at least it mentions the themes of the film, <laughs> which I feel like this ending as it exists does not. Like this, the moment where she asks why he loves her and he's just like, I don't know. And I guess that could be cute in a movie that was, you know, self-aware and smart. But it really just comes across as like, oh, no, this is really they couldn't even be bothered to think of a reason that they're too main you know couple are in love with each other that felt like the writers just giving up yeah it felt like a moment where as a writer it would be exactly what i would write down if i were like yeah i don't know fuck it like and yet it made it into the final product i will say too with some of these these rom-coms of this sort of ilk like these ones that are just really cheap and and badly made i have heard that that Studios will sometimes demand certain set pieces to be in the script just so they can be in the trailer. So sometimes like the physical comedy or maybe I don't know if this is true of the hot air balloon scene, but it would not surprise me. It's like they want these sort of big, you know, splashy physical comedy things just to cut into the trailer, which I also think if you are, you know, writing a film based on what you can cut up and put into the trailer is probably not a great way to make art, but does sort of like happen a lot with these sort of big, terrible mainstream comedies like this. It was especially baffling to me because this movie is set in Sacramento. And usually you want to do something with your film setting in a rom-com, you know, or Mm -hmm. you want the climax to take place in some locally recognizable landmark like Empire State Building for New York romantic comedy or Brooklyn Bridge or whatever. (laughs) And it felt like they they mentioned the fact that they're in Sacramento repeatedly. There's talk about how the dating pool in Sacramento is different from the dating pool in a more hip city or that kind of thing. And yet we never really do anything with the setting beyond, I guess, like uh, a green screen backdrop of Northern California. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's such a bizarre. I mean, yeah. Where did the hot air balloon idea even come from? Like, it really doesn't. It just is. It, it's just a lot of this movie is just like a grab bag, Mad Libs. Like they just pulled things out of a hat. And one of those things was hot air balloon. And they're like, well, we got to fit it in there somehow. <laughs> Caroline. This leads to my next question for you, which Mm -hmm. is about the writing of this movie. Okay, after I read your article, you said that the script had been floating around for a long time before the writing partners who worked on Legally Blonde and 10 Things I Hate About You and a bunch of amazing romantic comedies made some attempt to try to fix it. What do you think of our conspiracy theory about Nicole Eastman? Is she a real person? How did this movie come to exist? That is a very interesting... <laughs> I like that as a conspiracy theory. I have, Admittedly, I haven't done a ton of research on Nicole Eastman to know how valid this idea of her being a secret mole planted in Hollywood is. <laughs> um, yeah, it is baffling to me because I, I mean, I love 10 Things I Hate About You. I think Legally Blonde is for the time in which it was made was such a smart and subversive feminist movie. And then to see this, it really does feel like this, like it just feels like there could be no possible way that this is made by the same people. But if, if, you know, in my head, I, (laughs) I think you guys said this on your, your other episode too, like, you know, you want to be generous to these writers, people, you know, have ups and downs in their resumes. I think that there there comes a time where if a studio is demanding these things, people sort of have to step in to do them. Or if this is the only work that's available, then that's kind of what people do. And I, I think that sort of is like what happened to the romantic comedy in like the late the late 2000s was that this was what studios thought the market wanted. And so particularly if you were a woman who did these types of movies and you maybe didn't have a ton of, you know, other options available to you, this is sort of like what you had, you know what I mean? This is what you had available to do. And and I guess you just took it and ran with it and, and did your best. There's actually the writer of 27 Dresses has a really interesting journey where she sort of wrote the m- movie to be more of like, 
an indie coming of age dramedy and then the studio pushed it to be very mainstream and she ended up coming back and sort of embracing the mainstream aspect of it and and you know being willing to go with that but i do think that there's times when both writers and actors they're making more behind the scenes compromises than we maybe expect them to be i don't again i don't know if that was the case with this script in particular i do think that that is a phenomenon that happens a lot but I do like your theory that Nicole Eastman is just, I don't know, some front for the worst. (laughs) The The Mike Chadway of of the project. (laughs) The real real Mike Chadway. Yeah, I don't know. I think Hollywood is is a can be a fascinating place when it comes to what people are allowed, you know, or encouraged to do. I think that I think a lot of times people even like Catherine Heigl for as famous as she was, I think unless you are really a top, top tier actor, you have way less control over your career than people think that you do. Like I I kind of imagine most of the scripts coming her way were like this sort of film and it was sort of either you do this or maybe you don't do anything at all. And that I imagine that's a tough position to be in. Maybe my new conspiracy theory then is that they just leaned into making it all the way awful instead (laughs) of trying to save it. (laughs) Let's see how bad we can go. It does feel like it does feel like that is sort of like you kind of almost couldn't get a movie this bad unless there was some weird element of intentionality to it. I do want to note that I've confirmed that Nicole Eastman is a real person, okay. at least oh. as of a 2017 Deadline article about her selling a, a, a comedy spec to Fox. Fair enough. Mm. Well, and it could be the opposite, too, not to throw our beloved, you know, 10 things I hate about you screenwriters under the bus. But for all we know, Nicole could have written a great base script and it ended up she is disappointed that it got changed <laughs> into this. So maybe maybe we've been thinking about this in the wrong order. That would be the ugliest truth of all to accept. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, to think that in 1999, or I mean, previously, you know, the 10 things I hate about you screenwriters were like, yes, feminism sells. And Mm -hmm. then in 2009, they were like, no, the market's bottomed out. We need Gerard Butler with an American accent (laughs) talking about blowjobs and boobies. You know, I hadn't really thought about this so directly before you just said that but you really can trace like the modern at least like mainstream commercial feminism like you can just really trace that the ups and downs of that through romantic comedies I think because there are some high points and then decades that are just real real low points and those are not the decades you want to be revisiting you are so right like just thinking about (laughs) how good when Harry met Sally is and especially the orgasm scene in when Harry met Sally Mm -hmm. which is a um, what? <laughs> like this, the orgasm scene in the ugly truth is like the tether <laughs> to yes, um, yes, to the one in when Harry met Sally. Like, because in nineteen <laughs> in nineteen eighty nine, all these things were like moving and grooving, and Nora Ephron was writing these amazing scripts, and then things just kind of tanked in two thousand nine, yeah. and. It's just kind of like a bleak marker for how like the film industry saw women and how they thought that women could best be written. Yes. And I'm glad we're sort of more in an upswing now. I think it's a relief to not be (laughs) having films like The Ugly Truth released on a regular basis anymore. Were movies themselves just kind of getting worse in the late 2000s? That's actually a really good question. That could very well be the case, at least these sort of mainstream comedies. I do think, like, when something becomes a trend, like the sort of Judd Apatow raunchy rom-com, then you always sort of get these terrible knockoffs. And I'm sure The Ugly Truth isn't the only one, but it might be the worst of them, the worst of these knockoffs. Yeah, because I was astounded that it made something like $200 million at the box office, which is gangbusters for a rom-com today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No rom-com would make $200 million at the box office in 2020, even if we had movie theaters right now. Yeah, that is also bizarre that these films did relatively well it really is like a vicious cycle of no one wants to see them but a lot of people do so then studios are like well i guess that's what people want and then we just can't break out of this terrible cycle that we find ourselves in yeah it's an ouroboros it's uh, a <laughs> snake eating its own tail <laughs> <Truly>. uh. <laughs> 
true. And I was surprised to read in your article on this movie that uh, Ben Affleck and Gwyneth Paltrow were once attached to it. Wow. And I wanted to ask if you think that version would be better or worse. Well, I think this circles back to around to our Nicole Eastman question, because I'm pretty sure this was back just when it was her original script. So this really relies on whether she is the Mike Chadway, or the secret Nora Ephron, whose <laughs> masterwork got ruined. Um, let's see, Ben and Gwen. I I think that would be better. I think I like those actors better than this set of actors. Do I want to watch Ben Affleck say horrible misogynistic things? No, <laughs> probably not. But I, I think maybe... Wow, this is an interesting game of just like, which two actors do you sub into The Ugly Truth until it becomes the most watchable version of itself? <laughs> And I, I don't know oh, if those wow. two are the most, but I think that they're higher than than Catherine Heigl and Gerard Butler. Ben Affleck has a sadness to him that mm-hmm. I think would work better in the Mike Chadway character than yeah. just Gerard Butler's like gleeful chauvinism. Yeah, that's a very good <laughs> yeah. call, actually. I also love that his that they kind of couldn't even be bothered. Like they give him the tragic backstory, but again, instead of being specific, he's like, Yes, at various points in my life I had breakups. That's my backstory, the end. <laughs> and it's not even, you know, at least if it was like, here's the one woman and here's what she did. I mean, it would be trite, but at least it would be something but again it's a it's a moment of it felt like they were just like well what's the point of being specific we'll just say in general things had been bad at points in his life (laughs) yeah really felt like phoning it in he was just like some women i dated were sluts some of them were prudes (laughs) you can never find a real woman am i right and (laughs) you're just sitting there being like oh this guy's even more terrible than before he started disclosing his tragic backstory (laughs) yeah they needed to do something more with his sister and his nephew, I think. That could have been a helpful... To go back to your question of how to fix this film, maybe something... Maybe the sister has a guy who mistreated her, and that's how he realizes how terrible his advice is. I don't know. It felt like there were some building blocks here that could have been helpful, and they just chose to ignore them all. <laughs> yeah, they just had him slap her ass every time they yeah. were in the same scene together and then yeah. they, they just like you know shook off their hands and they were like yep good screenwriting today yeah <laughs> we've yeah, done what so we strange. could Sadie I want to know if that's actually written in the script that Mike Chadwick is supposed to slap his sister's ass in their one scene together <laughs> oh or was my that God, a Gerard like, Butler yeah. improv on set <laughs> just riffing <laughs> just like the marshmallows on set <laughs> His go-to move was just slapping any of his scene partners on the ass. I just feel like this movie ultimately was a window into a bleak place that Gerard Butler existed in 2009. Mm -hmm. He never looks happy in any frame of this movie, and I hope he is better today. Yeah, he's had a very strange career. I guess he makes all of those... Olympus has fallen movies now, so at least he's found a nice little niche for himself. Is he a good actor? Um, you know, he's a good voice actor. I like him in How to Train Your Dragon mm. and the franchise mm-hmm. of that. Yeah. But I do think the question of yeah. is Gerard Butler a good actor is like the defining question of his now very lengthy career. <laughs> <laughs> and no one quite yeah. knows the answer. <laughs> 40 movies in we're like (laughs) we're still figuring it out (laughs) i think he's found his niche now like i think that he yeah he's probably good in the movies that he's making and so that's all he's gonna do you know and i wish i wish that katherine heigl had had found a similar niche i don't think it was rom-coms even though 27 dresses Mm -hmm. is is the outlier in my opinion. I just I think that Catherine Heigl, sorry to turn it back around to Catherine Heigl, but I love talking about her. Let's go there. Let's go there. <laughs> yes. I I think that what works and you can um state what you think about this Caroline. I think that what works in 27 dresses with Catherine Heigl is that she plays a, a warm character. She plays a nice character yeah. and she's able to bring out some nuance with that and it's a lot more fun and enjoyable to watch her and to root for her. But when she plays these more cold or uptight quote unquote characters she just plays it so aggressive and so cold that you don't really care about her or root for her to have a happy ending especially with 
Mike Chadway. Yeah, I think you're right. She has a very particular energy. And I think when harnessed correctly, as I think 27 Dresses and Grey's Anatomy both did, I think it can Mm. be compelling. But when she's not sort of reined in, or honestly, when she's not really given a character to play, like Abby is really not much of a character other than this idea that she sort of makes lists sometimes. There's not really a lot to sort of dig into there. I actually kind of think the scene where she leans into the like the the terrible jello scene the moment where she's like well if we're gonna do this let's lean into it and make it as awful as we can that's like almost an interesting character moment where it's like she has her principles but she's also understands what sells i don't know there there like could be something interesting there but there's so little to her that you know yeah i don't think that this is a great use of katherine heigl at all what do you think about sadie's theory that she killed the rom-com as we know it. <laughs> I think at the very least, I think she is certainly emblematic of the death of the rom-com. I think it's sort of not her fault that the genre was this bad when she was po- this popular. Yeah. Like, I think that this also could have been, like, if it had happened just a little earlier, it would have been like Kate Hudson would have been the emblem of this. And to some extent still kind of was, I, but I think Catherine got the the, the brunt of it. Um, so I I don't know. I In my heart, I'm a little bit of a high goal defender. So I'm hesitant to put the genre's whole demise on her, but I think she is certainly tied up in it in a way that she will probably never escape. I don't know if you guys have ever seen, there's this fascinating movie she did, okay, it was in 2015, called Jenny's Wedding, which is, it's it's a drama about her getting married to Alexis Bledel, so it's like a lesbian romantic comedy. And it's fascinating because it feels like if it had been released in 1995, we all would have been like, wow, what a lovely progressive movie. But it came out in 2015 and it was just sort of like, what is happening? Like, this is, this is, I mean, it's perfectly sweet, but this is not where we are culturally that the things you're doing feel, you know, edgy and original in this way. Like the concept that lesbians exist did not necessarily feel like groundbreaking territory to explore in 2015. But I don't know. I also wonder if she is so famous for doing rom-coms. Like, I wonder if that's kind of all she gets offered. And maybe Jenny's wedding was her attempt to try to break out of the traditional mold and at least do something slightly new with it. So I don't know. That's another one for for you guys to maybe cover one day because it's a fascinating little like oddball example. I completely forgot about Jenny's wedding. Like I watched it and then I it immediately left my mind. Because yeah, it, it's very forgettable. Yeah, and it was marketed as a as a romantic comedy, but I didn't laugh like through no. through any of it. It was like kind of sad and intense, and I was just like, "Y'all, this is." <laughs> Again, like if it had came out in like the nineties, I'd have been like, "Yeah, right. this is this is how parents react, and this is how things happen." But that was not not the romantic comedy I want to watch in twenty fifteen <laughs> or now. I am baffled at the idea of Katherine Heigl playing a queer woman. Does it work, those of you who have seen it? Because to me, she gives off such like uh, Kinsey 6 energy. Wait, that's Kinsey 1, isn't it? Samantha, where's the Kinsey scale fall? (laughs) (laughs) I got my Kinsey scale mixed up. Because Katherine Heigl confused it with her yeah. <laughs> yellowy blonde bleach job. They they kind of minimize her on-screen romance with Alexis. Like it's more of it's more of Jenny, it's like a coming out drama almost more so of like her and her family and her family rejecting her, but but not in a, like an interesting and realistic way in the way that that might actually happen very much in a like made for TV, you know, after school special 90s way. So I think that they just are mostly like let's just say off screen that she's gay, but we won't actually explore that too. So so we don't really get a scale of of how she leans into portraying a queer woman as much. And Alexis Bledel also has a strange energy. So them paired together, you're just sort of like, hmm, you're both interesting. You can both be interesting actresses at times, but I'm not sure these were the right <laughs> roles for you here. It reminds me of, I forget which movie this is, but Rashida Jones is in it and she's playing a, like a queer, a gay woman. And they just like put her in a flannel shirt and like <laughs> oversized glasses. And they're like, there you go. She's gay. Like, <laughs> Yeah. That's kind of the whole energy of Jenny's wedding. I think it's a little bit of like, sure, this is what it is. <laughs> This is not necessarily about the ugly truth, but I saw in your article that you referenced Shallow Hal, and 
you mm. implied that it was worse than the ugly truth and it's been a couple of years since i've had the pleasure um of watching shallow yeah. hell but i would love to hear your opinion pitting these two terrible movies against each other oh my gosh yeah that's a real grim battle i think it's actually been a couple of years since i've seen shallow hell as well but but the last time i watched it i was like oh dear this is you know i think when it came out this is the movie with starring jack black the concept is that he gets a magical curse and so he sort of sees people's inner spirits so he falls in love with gwyneth paltrow looking like gwyneth paltrow but actually the rest of the film we see gwyneth paltrow in quite a large fat suit so the whole concept is he sees her quote-unquote inner beauty where she looks very conventionally attractive and then we also are laughing at a lot of fat jokes of Gwyneth Paltrow in a fat suit. So very terrible example of, again, like sort of early, I can't remember if it's late 90s or early 2000s culture. That is, I don't know, that was a movie where I was like, I can't imagine this holds up. And I watched and I was like, yeah, it actually held up up even less than I was hoping it would. It's really (laughs) a sort of (laughs) grim look at how, you know, we, we thought about bodies for a long time in our culture. I do think Jack Black, I do like Jack Black, so maybe his presence is more of a saving grace than Gerard Butler's <laughs> presence <laughs> is. But I certainly think if we're if we're talking about actual worst romantic comedies, I think Ugly Truth and Shallow House should both be on some like March Madness bracket and we can get, <laughs> you know, various experts to yes. weigh in and, and figure out which which is actually the worst one. But I feel like there are some other contenders along with The Ugly Truth. And I want to, before I definitively call The Ugly Truth the worst rom-com, I'm like, okay, I need to make sure that I've seen (laughs) the low, low bar that is out there with all of these various films. What are some of your other contenders? Do you have any off the top of your head that are in the same league? I don't want to offend our, these, you know, you lovely folks that might be leap year fans, but that has been one that in the past I've held up as being, <laughs> I, I would not put it on the ugly truth level at all. Like this is, leap year is, is miles ahead of the ugly truth, but that is one that I'm often held up as sort of, we take really great actresses and sort of plug them into very rote romantic comedy. So that one is at least rote, maybe not terrible. Um, there, oh, there's one with, um, Jennifer Lopez and Jane Fonda called Mother and Monster-in-Law, where the whole concept is just, like, women hate each other for two hours. That one also I remember being really bad. I know Katherine Heigl has done some other ones on her resume as well. Um, there's also this movie called Something Borrowed that I actually think would be really interesting for your, for you to cover on the podcast, because I think that's one of the great missed opportunities of the other guy should have gotten the girl at the end. Um, but that's a Jennifer Goodwin, Kate Hudson romantic comedy that I think is, it's like better made artistically mm-hmm. than this one, but the sort of core phenomenon of, again, all women hate each other being a premise is something I find very upsetting in the romantic comedy genre. And it's sitting at a 15% on Rotten Tomatoes, yeah. which bodes Yikes. well for us. <laughs> <laughs> but it does not, at least it, it, it like feels like a movie in the way the ugly truth. Sometimes you're like, is this actually a film? Is this just a series <laughs> of terrible physical comedy sketches? I'm so glad that you mentioned Leap Year. My dream is for Sadie to just have to I'm endure. I'm so sorry, Sadie. <laughs> just we hours you, Sadie. and hours. <laughs> Well, it's funny because so my I think my version of Leap Year is the Mandy Moore um, movie Chasing Liberty, which actually also stars Matthew Good. So I un- oh. totally understand where you're coming from in defending your love for for a Matthew Good romantic comedy, except mine is Chasing Liberty instead of Leap Year. <laughs> and in both of those movies, he is a European man who is chasing an American girl around yes. Europe. <laughs> I, that's my favorite genre of movie. <laughs> Yeah, that was there was a time where we were like, this is this will be all the movies now. Matthew Good and an American woman <laughs> stranded and having to like stay at a barn of a nice couple that they meet. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds so much more pleasant than the movies we watched in the, you know, 2000 to 2010. The 2000 mm-hmm. teens, I think, turned it around. Brought the romantic comedy back. Yes, we're in a much better... I feel like now we're in a real era of sort of embracing rom-coms again, which is good. But then I also... I, I can be a little anxious, so I worry about the inevitable backlash that will happen and will we just have to relive through <laughs> a period as bad as the, the late 2000s again. So are you enjoying the kind of rom-com renaissance-ish or are you just too anxious about it? 
potentially <laughs> no, I definitely, in a few years. I definitely am enjoying it. There's times where I watch sort of the umpteenth Netflix teen rom-com and I can sort of see them getting back to, eh, here's a premise and we didn't really commit to it. And those kind of make me nervous. But then I feel like, you know, every so often a really good one comes out and then I'm like, okay, we're still, we're still going to be okay. There's going to be good romantic comedies coming out. We just need to make sure we're not taking the genre for granted as I think we once did. This is kind of a broader zoomed out question, but what do you think the genre can accomplish at its best? Like why, mm-hmm. why is it a vital cultural touchstone for us still? Yes. Why does it matter? So I think in general, it's like, I think one way I approach rom-coms is that they can sort of be a stealth way to tell interesting stories about women that are not just exclusively about their love lives, actually. Like, I think something like 27 Dresses is sort of like an interesting, if heightened and very mainstream, but like an interesting portrait of a certain type of woman. And you see, you know, she has a romance, but it's sort of like, here's her relationship with her sister. And here's how she is with her friends. And here's how she is with her boss. And it's sort of, it's like, I don't know, a genre that that even in its worst can sort of smuggle in interesting stories about women. Um, so I've always really connected to that aspect of it. And I also really have always liked sort of heightened worlds as a way to comment on reality. Like, I'm also a really big fan of sci-fi and action movies. And I think sci-fi's whole thing is we're going to, you know, we're going to exaggerate things to unrealistic proportions. But at the core of it, we have, you know, realistic, relatable ideas about humanity. And I think something like When Harry Met Sally, you know, it's not necessarily a realistic movie, but the core underneath that heightened aspect is like a, a real humanity and sort of relatable emotions about vulnerability and relationships and and things like that. And I mean, maybe that is the biggest problem with the ugly truth is like, there is no core underneath the, <laughs> the terribleness of it that you can sort of relate to. But I think at its best, the genre can say like, we're heightening things, this is not realistic, but you can sort of relate your own experiences to it in the way that something like sci-fi or like musical theater, you know, these all these sort of di- different heightened worlds, I think, can do in really compelling ways. Yeah, I think a really good rom-com is can be timeless in a way mm-hmm. that, that other genres m- might not always be. Like one thing I found fascinating about doing this podcast is uh, Sadie, 10 years our junior, um, I don't want to speak for Sadie, but just I I found it really interesting the way Sadie has connected with these movies from a decade that was not her own decade, right? Well, Sadie, what do you like about the genre as a fellow as a fellow fan of it? I like how rom-coms center on emotion, which not Mm -hmm. a lot of other genres do. Um, I feel like sometimes horror we've talked about this before sometimes horror will do a similar thing um but i don't like horror movies so rom-coms are it (laughs) for me i think like the screenplays really focus on dialogue and talking about your feelings and just some of the greater screenwriters like nancy myers and nora efron like the lines that they write are just so good and they get it like the humanness of people Mm -hmm. And I love that about it. I truly do. Yeah. No, I think that's spot on. And I think one thing, you know, it's maybe less popular now, but there was a period where it was just really popular to rag on romantic comedies as being the worst thing ever. But I think one thing that people miss is that the audience, like the people that like them, I don't think anyone is necessarily watching these films and thinking this is realistic and this is how I expect my life to go. You know, in the way that somebody watching a gangster shoot 'em up drama is not thinking this is a realistic portrait (laughs) of, you know, urban crime. You're sort of enjoying it because it's a very heightened version of that. And I think people that like romantic comedies can be very, are frequently very smart and, you know, hip to genre tropes, but you like those genre tropes in the way that people like, you know, for Martin Scorsese gangster dramas or what have you, all these sort of different heightened genres that we have. And rom-coms are are just one version of that. And I think rom-com fans are are savvier than they sometimes are given credit for. Yeah, I think sometimes you recognize that the romance is just there to drive the plot and you're Mm -hmm. looking for other things. I think about like a movie like The Devil Wears Prada where I could give two shits about her boyfriend in that movie. (laughs) I'm just more interested in her workplace dynamic, her career aspirations, how she handles a demanding boss. Like those are all more relatable and interesting Mm -hmm. things to me than like which of these two men does she end up with at the end of the movie? Yeah, again, very like complex stories about women at their best. Again, as The Ugly Truth has showed us, not all rom-coms achieve that goal. 
but the best ones can. Caroline, thank you so much for joining us. Where can people find you and your work? Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. Probably the best place to find me is just on Twitter. I'm at Caroline Sita. Um, I write pretty regularly for the AV Club. You guys mentioned my column, When Romance Meant Comedy. And then I'm kind of all over the place. So Twitter is usually a good little hub to find me at. For the happily ever after to this episode of You Should See the Other Guy, we just want to remind you guys that we now have a Twitter at YSSTOG and an email account at YSSTOGpodcast at gmail, where you can send us feedback. And to address our feedback we have gotten already, Evan has requested win a date with Tad Hamilton as a future feature. Sharon enjoys very much Sadie's Katherine Heigl killed rom-coms theory and agrees that the ugly truth is responsible for the ascendance of Trump. Justin <laughs> wants us to veer into romantic tragedies with Boz Lerman's Romeo plus Juliet and we are also now available on Apple Podcasts. I don't know that my body <laughs> is ready for win a date with Tad Hamilton. <laughs> I don't want to disappoint. <laughs> I don't well, want to win a Samantha, date with Tad Hamilton. <laughs> you brought us into uh, the ugly truth. And I think now it's your turn for win a date with Tad Hamilton, which I too have not seen. So my body might not be ready either. And Sadie, have you seen it? I have not seen win a date with Tad Hamilton. I think I may have watched it during a 2am fever dream in the late <laughs> 2000s. Because I remember almost nothing about it except that Topher Grace is in it. I think playing a celebrity named Tad oh, Hamilton. Is he Tad Hamilton? He's the, he plays the titular role. <laughs> <laughs> wow, he's Tad Wait, Josh Jumel is not Tad Hamilton? What? I'm learning about this movie already. Is this going to be included in the outro? Oh, <laughs> to the <nope>. podcast? Yeah. <laughs> I hope so. Josh Jumel is Tad Hamilton. Topher Grace okay. is some guy named Pete Monash. Oh, so Josh Jumel would be our other guy, I'm presuming, Ooh. just based off reading the summary where... Yes, because he is Tad Hamilton. Yeah. <laughs> There is something weirdly compelling about Topher Grace. Really? I yeah, yeah. I could not forgive him for his portrayal of Carnage in um, or Venom or which of them? Which of the symbiotes was it in Spider Man Three? Carnage. Carnage. Yeah. I think. Yeah, he would be Carnage. Wait, so uh, you did? Jennifer like- Goodwin is also in this one. Damn. <laughs> Wait, so you didn't like the rom com Venom? <laughs> <laughs> Spider Man 3 is another story. <laughs> Agreed. And Topher Grace was just like the worst possible person you could cast as Eddie Brock. <laughs> That's so bad. Could we make Spider Man 3 a rom com? I'm just trying to engineer win a date with Tad oh, Hamilton God. into us doing Spider Man 3. <laughs> Maybe for episode 23, Samantha. <laughs> I think Spider-Man 3 can count it. <laughs> James Franco would be our other guy. We'd have to argue yeah. for for someone who goes on oh, to become God. the Green Goblin. That would be a tough one, too. How do we feel about the Romeo plus Juliet suggestion? I mean, I'm down because I'm down. my partner suggested it for one. But our other guy would be... Paris, who is played by uh, Paul Rudd in that movie. And basically our argument would be that... (laughs) I forgot that (laughs) (laughs) There wouldn't be like a family war. People wouldn't die. Like, it's a pretty easy other guy argument, I feel like, for that one. I don't know. Would you pick early 90s Leo or Paul Rudd? Paul Rudd. Well, okay. Like... Purely based off of, um, you know, his looks, 100% Paul Rudd. Yeah, no, agreed. I was never a Leo fan. Did Samantha go grayed out for you just now? Yeah, just now. Yeah. (laughs) I was like, "Mm, she went oddly silent. (laughs) Samantha, we can't hear you. Samantha.